0: We are in the midst of a series of messages um, titled, as you see there, That Which Shall Not Be, and this is uh, an idea that came together for the first time, at least for me. I was uh, sitting around a campfire with another group of men, and one of them uh, just asked, like, how, how much of a factor is shame in your own life? How much of a role does shame play in who you are, how you relate to others, how you live? And I, I have to say, at first, my reaction was, oh, probably not very much, Right? And the more we got to talking about it, the more uh, it became apparent that shame plays a huge part in our lives. Um, As we began to just sort of develop that idea and and our relationship to it, it became clear that shame has has a, uh, a twin, if you will, Uh, guilt that those two things tend to come together and it's a package deal and there's other things that actually come with that unpleasant gift but uh, I want to just this morning take a look at this idea and from the vantage point of its removal this idea that one day Christ will return that he will call us to himself as a as a people without sin, without the confusion of conflict, doubt, fear, guilt, shame, suffering, all of these things that so define who we are and how we relate to the world. And so I want to sort of look at this idea from the vantage point of eternity and ask the question, what would it be like to live without shame I want to begin this journey in a place where shame did not exist uh, that was the Garden of Eden and I'll, we'll, just, we'll just capture that really quickly in reading from Genesis chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 where it says uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we were created in a context where there was no sin, no guilt, no fear, no shame. This all changes rather suddenly, uh, but initially I just want us to sort of think about this for a second, that we originally existed in a condition without shame. What would that be like? To live completely free of shame. And, you know, again, so much of our existence uh, relates back to this Idea, from our clothing to uh, what we drive, what we say, the way we cause ourselves to appear to others. Um, so, let's take a look at for just a moment. Um, we have this this glimpse of a world without shame. And let's let's watch the train wreck again as Genesis chapter 3 unfolds. We'll read a few verses, uh, verses 7 through 10 out of that chapter. And this is just after uh, Eve and Adam have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were told not to eat of. And it says next, their eyes, the eyes of both Were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So, everything has changed. And with the advent of sin comes shame, guilt, and fear. They were afraid. And try to uh, paint this picture um, as fairly as I can. I think that tradition in translation has actually missed something in this little passage. And I'll try to explain what that something is. But let's just lay this out for a second that that with the advent of sin comes the following chain of events. Wrath from God, fear from man, shame and guilt on our part. And we might add death to that equation, spiritually speaking at least. Uh, God had actually said to Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So, Something massive has shifted at this point in the history of mankind. And I want to just talk about that for a second. But if you look back with me um, in verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That word for cool is actually the word for breath or spirit, and if you go to the book of Job, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, one of Job's friends talks about the, the breath or spirit of God coming out of his nose, sort of a, right? It's, it's a Hebrew euphemism for anger. In fact, the Hebrew word for anger is nose, and and I I want you to imagine the the nostrils of God flaring. You've seen your father do this at some point or another. Yes, Katie's giving me an amen. You go, sister. Alright. The blood flushes red to the nose, the nostrils flare, and you know your day of accounting is here. Dad is huffing. Right? And so, I think what you actually have in Genesis chapter three verse eight is not God strolling through the cool of the day going, Where did everybody go? Okay? He knows where they are. And he's coming for them. And it's it's a picture of wrath that his breath is huffing and they hear him. And so Uh, Think of it this way, and this word is not actually in the Hebrew text. But think of it this way: God comes thundering into the garden. That's a better cloud image of uh, shade and whatnot, the cool of the day. God comes thundering in, and Adam and Eve go, "Oh no! This is going to be a bad day. This is not going to be like it was a few minutes ago. This is going to be bad." And I would have hidden. You would have run and hide. Anyone who heard this would have done what they did. And so, it begins with God's wrath towards sin entering the picture. And we do what humans will do. We hide. Um, Let's just establish a couple of truths. We, as humans are still in the activity of covering our shame. It's what we do. It's Adam and Eve's first response was to cover themselves. We are still in the process of covering our shame. You have figured out your favorite ways of doing this the ways you find to be most effective at convincing others that you should not be ashamed, that you have it together, that you are a good person, that you are whatever it is you're projecting yourself to be. And I would say not all of that is bad or evil, but we can be helped when we recognize how much of our lives are engaged, we are engaged in covering our shame. So, we're still trying to cover our shame. Let me talk for just a second about uh, true shame and false shame. True shame is the result of those sins which we commit, which we (laughs) rightly deserve the shame we feel. Right? We deserve, I can't believe I did that again right you've never had that feeling I'm sure Um, but true or legitimate shame is a real thing it's the result of sin that we are directly responsible for there is false shame I think in in The course of, Catherine, how long have we been in ministry? Pretty much our entire marriage. Yeah, so a long time, 20 some odd years. Let's just put that, what's that? You stop counting, it's too depressing. Um, But, you know, we've we've walked with, with many of you through many of life's most difficult moments. And that's an honor to be part of that with you. One of the weirdest things that that we have come across, and I would I would say, not not weird in the in the sense that it's occurred, but weird in the in the sense that it's hard to figure out. But I want to just talk about false shame for a second. We've seen this when women have been particularly sexually abused; they are not guilty of what happened to them. They feel incredible shame about the entire event and, and suffer the results of that shame that's technically the sin of someone else. Does that make sense? And I would, I would love to just say, you know, honey, this isn't your burden, right? But it doesn't work that way. It, the shame is the, is the result of sin. Whether you're the perpetrator or the victim, sin bears the same results. And uh, most offenses of that nature go unprosecuted because of this false shame, this, this misappropriation of shame. It's not her's. But she will own that and feel that and live with the burden and weight of that because, well, that's what we do. And so just to clarify, there's, there's shame that comes as the result of things we deserve, so to speak, and there's shame that comes upon us that's very real and very powerful, but it's not the result of our sin. It's, it's a false shame. It's an imposed shame guilt works much the same way we are still trying to cover our shame and we're trying to hide our guilt Uh, these two covering and hiding mechanisms are native to who we are i mean first thing the kid said in the children's chat i would hide when mom walks into the room like boom i love you man great answer you know, and it's the first thing, well the second thing that Adam and Eve do, they cover their shame and they hide, they try to hide their guilt. They know that they've disobeyed, and they hear that huffing through the nose of God, and they want out. They will get what they want, but Okay. So we're still trying to cover our shame, we're still trying to hide our guilt. And let's just make the same distinction. True guilt, legitimate guilt, the guilt for the sins that we've committed, that we we deserve to feel guilty for, if you will. Probably not the healthiest way to say that. But the the guilt that is just, justly applied to us or justly generated within us. And then false guilt. And so we talked last week about Fear. and these are really the big three fear, shame, and guilt they all pop up in this, in, in this original narrative of where sin breaks into the human condition and if you look at cultures if you look at families if you look at places where people are concerned about controlling other people you see these big three being used like weapons to control entire countries or entire cultures or just a family or just one person. And an unhealthy person who really knows how to wield the weapon of guilt is deadly. That person can wreck your soul. It's a, it's a deadly weapon. And That one can come in any number of forms, but you can be made to feel guilty. Well, your sister's coming for Christmas. (laughs) Right? Nothing else has to be said. If that person knows how to wield that weapon, your goose is cooked, so to speak. I think that's the right metaphor for that one. Yeah, your Christmas goose is cooked. Yes. So there's legitimate guilt and there's illegitimate guilt that's imposed in an attempt to manipulate, control, or otherwise ruin your day. Um, true guilt and false guilt. And I think these are important distinctions. And it's interesting... I actually believe Christ deals with them both the the true shame, the true guilt, the false shame the false guilt He deals with it all and we'll we 'll look take a look at that in just a second. So let me jump to a, a passage in the in the what I call the Gospel of Isaiah. This is in chapter six. This is an old testament prophet and he's he 's looking at the current condition of Israel, which is a wreck. And he's looking forward to uh, something that God will do in the future. And this chapter 6 is fairly early uh, in this book. There's 60 some odd chapters and uh, he's just getting started. But uh, God pulls Isaiah up into heaven, into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, there are thousands of angelic beings. And Isaiah actually describes them. They're kind of weird. I don't think this was an alien abduction. I think Isaiah was actually taken into the presence of God. That was a bad joke if you didn't catch that. Um, But uh, Isaiah describes these heavenly creatures that surround the throne of God. And then something remarkable happens. Isaiah says he, he's in the presence of God. He catches the whole scene and something occurs to him. And he says these words. And I said, woe is me. For I, Let me make sure I got this right. Excuse me. That was me. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What did Isaiah realize? Let's start here. After Isaiah has his realization, what happens? Anyone? Anyone? Euler? What? What happens after Isaiah realizes, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am lost. What happens? I can't understand any of you. So, the angelic being takes a pair of tongs, picks up a coal from where? The altar of God. And so atonement comes from the altar of God. That's the first great truth in this passage. Atonement comes from the altar of God. The altar is the place, if you don't know, where where sacrifices are burned. And the aroma that goes up, the smoke that goes up, is is what uh, symbolizes the, the appeasement of the wrath of God. So, the coal comes from the altar. Atonement comes from the altar of God. What does I ra- Isaiah realize in this moment where he sees God? He realizes that we cannot hide from God. Though it is our native instinct, and Isaiah has been as busily engaged in this activity as we are, he gets into the presence of God and he says, Oh, I'm done. I can't, I, there's nothing that could suffice to hide my guilt and shame from this holy entity and he he is bowed in the presence of god and of course god moves toward that realization he responds to that the symbolism here is significant that only a sacrifice can remove our guilt isaiah would throughout his ministry come into a growing realization that this sacrifice would be made by God himself and so here's an Old Testament prophet 600 some odd years prior to Christ who figures it out he figures out the mystery that that these animals that are being sacrificed on the altar won't ever atone for guilt God Himself, when He becomes the suffering servant, as Isaiah called Him, would offer a final sacrifice that would atone for the sins of humanity. So, let me take you to a spot later in the book of Isaiah, and he is prophesying that the people to whom he is speaking will be laid waste by a foreign army because they continue to be more concerned about hiding Their guilt, shame, and fear than actually giving it to God. And so God says, Okay, all right, you can refuse me. There will be consequences, and you will be scattered, and your land will be barren. You will will be in this position of barrenness. And He says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. So Isaiah says it's, it's going to be bad. The result of sin is fear. Guilt, shame, suffering. But it's not going to last forever. God is going to come, and He Himself, the Holy One of Israel, is your Redeemer. Isaiah has figured out that God is going to offer Himself on that altar as the atonement for our sins. And so God Himself will redeem us, He will take away our shame. And he will join himself to us. This is a powerful and important truth. That God marries us, so to speak. We are his bride collectively. That we are joined to him for eternity. And he will not break his vow of faithfulness to us. Though we will break our vow of faithfulness to him. He will not. So... If we may, let's jump to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul is writing these words, and he has the advantage of clarity. He's writing after the cross. He knows what God did. He knows that God became human and offered Himself as the Lamb of God, a sacrifice to atone for our sins. And he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, we are to accept the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. I want to emphasize something here. This is not just a one-time thing. I need this grace every day. I cannot tell you how profound this truth is. That every single day we wrestle with our guilt, shame, and fear. And we need to go back to the cross and say, thank you. Thank you. I'm forgiven again. I'm a new man again. I've been redeemed. And so, we're to accept this forgiveness and we're to reflect His love and grace toward others. We are to take what God has given to us and push it out towards others to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Romans eight one through two. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are to accept the freedom that is ours in Christ, and to stop allowing guilt and shame to control us easier said than done. But the calling is to step into a whole new way of living where freedom is enjoyed and we are not afraid. We don't have to cover. We don't have to hide. Um, Let me just take you back to to the verse the passage that kind of defines this whole series in Revelation chapter 21. I just want you to hear these words. It's an incredible summary of much that we've we've seen from other parts of the Bible. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have this picture of a Christ who's taken away our sin and as a consequence there's no more death there's no more suffering there's no more tears there's no more shame no more guilt no more fear you are called into a new truth a life without the weight of shame guilt fear will you pray with me? God our Father, we are humbled by the truth of your word. And if it wasn't so tragic, we would laugh at the predictability of our own souls. That in the face of our sin and the sin of others, we would hide and cover and fear Father, we thank You that You've called us into a new way of living where there is no fear, there is no shame, and there is no guilt because of what You have done through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for that sacrifice, for that love, for that grace, for that forgiveness that redefines who we are. May we live in such a way that others can sense Your grace through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.